Good morning. It's good to be here with you. You have to love a church where the drummer is also the lead pastor. That's pretty exceptional. Uh, it's great to be here with you. I've been here a couple of times. It's always a real pleasure. Uh, where do you begin? You know, Christians, if what, what Christians believe is true, that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, then that is not something that is just contained on one particular day or it's on, contained on Easter. But it's something that is worked out at every, every, at every moment, on every day, throughout the entire year. And so Pentecost, the day of Pentecost, is the time in, in the Christian story in which uh, the Holy Spirit is detonated into the people of God. And the story of the resurrection is brought out and it's, it penetrates into the hearts of those people in that moment. So that the Holy Spirit is at work all throughout the world, making that story, making the resurrection real to you and I, to Christians. So we're going to look a little bit at the story of the resurrection. And I saw Stephen Colbert defending the resurrection a few weeks ago on some YouTube clip. And what he said is, is that Jesus and the resurrection story is so huge, it's so enormous that it, does, it takes more than one perspective to get, a, to get a full understanding of it. And so all throughout the Gospels, we see multiple accounts of the resurrection. We see Thomas's uh, uh, account of the resurrection. You see Paul's uh, account of the resurrection. Uh, prior to this passage, which we're about to look at, we see... Um, John and Peter's account of the resurrection, of their seeing as eyewitnesses, Jesus rose from the dead. And today, we're going to look at another one. We're going to look at Mary Magdalene. And there's so much that we can learn about Mary Magdalene. And so let's read from this passage and then we'll, we'll have this teaching. Let's listen to God's word. This is from John chapter 20, verses 11 through 18. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. That's God's word. I think when I was looking at this passage, this one little phrase just sort of jumped out at me. And that phrase is in that first verse there. And it says, uh, but Mary stood weeping. 
Mary stood weeping. Mary stood weeping. And I think we can learn a lot by looking at just that simple phrase. Learn a lot about the resurrection by looking at that little stanza that Mary stood weeping. And I think we can look at it in three ways. That the resurrection is historical. That the resurrection is personal. And that the resurrection is transformational. First, the resurrection is historical. Not just anybody stood there. Mary stood there. Mary, a real person in real time. Someone just like you and I. It's personal. Mary stood there. And we'll unpack that a little bit more. Why she stayed. Why she stood. And then uh, that she stood weeping. Um, That the resurrection is transformative for us. As that it transforms all the great things in our life and it transforms all the terrible things that happen in our life too. So, the resurrection is historical, it's personal, and it's transformative. First, historical. The resurrection is historical. This is exactly what Christians have always said. We, we bank on this, we stand on this. This is not just something that makes us feel better, helps us get out. Uh, it's not convenient necessarily for us. But the resurrection is, is historical. And my wife and I, we've taken part in this, um, this, I guess you'd call it a learning group. And she and I are the only Christians in this group. And there are a bunch of people that have become friends of ours. And they really love the story of Jesus. They, it makes them feel good. It, it, does, it brings healing into their lives in some way. And they're, they're really curious about it. They want it to be true. But from first to last, each one of them would say, I don't know if I can trust the Bible as a historical document. Is this, did this really happen? And I came across this book, and the book is called Truth Matters. It's called Truth Matters, Confident Faith in a Confusing World. And I like this book a lot because, on one hand, I like it because it's written for high school students. So it's very easy to understand. No offense, guys. Um, but the reason it's written for high school students is because there's a trend and maybe this, this was your experience, that when you went to, you grew up perhaps maybe in a Christian home, you had a knee-jerk positive response to Jesus, but when you went off to college, you took Religion 101, and you started hearing things about how the Bible came about. You start hearing things about the history of the Christian church, and the bottom drops out of your faith. And so these guys, these New Testament scholars, uh, there's two or three of them, so I won't name all of them, they put together this book, as a response to some of these things that come out, some of the facts that, that you would hear. And the, the first one that they address is that um, there are no original autographs of the New Testament writings. They're only copies. And they said when students hear that, they just say, I can't believe this. And so let's just talk about that for a second. That the New Testament uh, documents that we have, that they're only manuscripts, they're only copies, they're not original documents. When you look at any work of antiquity... Homer, Tacitus, Aristotle, Plato, all these people that we know and love and so much of Western culture has been built upon, we are only looking at copies. We, we have no original documents of those, of those particular writers that we trust. Uh, and so this learning group that I'm in, we started sort of doing this survey of these, of, these, of these particular writers, and we came across this survey that said this. So that Tacitus, he wrote in the first century, the earliest manuscript that we have is from 1100 A.D., which is a thousand year gap between when it was originally written and the manuscript that we actually have. And 
we have three manuscripts of Tacitus' work. Plato. Plato wrote in the 5th century B.C. The earliest manuscript that we have is from 900 A.D. That's a 1,200-year gap. And we have seven manuscripts to, to work from and to learn from. Aristotle wrote in the 4th century B.C. The earliest manuscript we have is 1100 A.D. It's a 1,300-year gap. And we have 20 manuscripts to work from and to learn from. Now let's compare that to the New Testament. Oh, let me say this first. As you can see that if you were listening, I hope so, you would notice that we have actually a relatively small amount of material from which to, to glean and to trust Right. But everybody, every smart person, all the academia would look at those documents and say these are verifiable ancient documents. We trust them. So let's look at the New Testament. When we look at the same criteria the New Test in the New Testament, we see that they are written somewhere between 20 and 100 years after the original events within the lifetime of the people for whom they are about. OK. And the number of manuscripts that we have dating back to as early as the second century is 5,600. It's an astounding number of manuscripts, right? The New Testament is the gold standard for books of antiquity. It is, it's, the, it's, it's the gold standard. I don't know what else I can say. And so you might say, okay, well, 5,600 manuscripts, that's a lot. But what if they're corrupted? What about all, the, about all the compromises, perhaps, that are in there? What about dropped words and added words or dropped phrases and added phrases? What about personal scribal uh, additions? And that's a, really good, that's a really good point. But let's do this thought experiment. At my church, coincidentally, there are about 5,600 programs that go out every Sunday. There's about 5,600 people that attend Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. And so about 5,600 programs go out every Sunday. And we take those programs and we, we, our fingerprints get all over them. I, we take notes on the sermon in them. Uh, we write notes to each other in them. Okay. So let's just say that from the pulpit we also gave an assignment. And that assignment was this. We'd like you to blot out five words or phrases on each of those pages in that program. Okay. And then we'd collect them all at the end and we'd spend weeks going over them. Now, assuming that not all 5,600 people would have blotted out the same five words and five phrases, we could compare them one to another. And not knowing what that original program actually was, we would know beyond a shadow of a doubt what was actually said in that original program. So in one, one program, maybe it says, and Jesus Christ was Lord. And maybe 20 people blotted out that phrase. But then you'd have over 5,000 manuscripts that filled in the blank. And you would just find that all over the place. And so, in a way, every Christian would want to have the autographed, original document that Mark wrote. But we don't need it. To know exactly what Mark said. It's there. In fact, this actually can give us more confidence than, than it would be to just have one pristine letter from John, you know, Mark, Luke, so on and so forth. Does that make sense? So the New Testament is the gold standard for books of antiquity. And as we were, as a group, as we were looking at these things, we began to realize a couple of things that has implications. The first is, is that 
uh, if you can't trust the New Testament as a historical document, then you can't trust Homer or Aristotle or Origen or any of these other people. And nobody wants to go down that path. We love these books. For different reasons, we need that history too. So we don't want to go down that path. The second thing that we learned was that that's an astounding number of, of manuscripts to put out. That takes a lot of time and a lot of energy. It was very expensive to do. You had to be very calculated to put all that stuff together. And why would somebody do that? What could they have possibly seen that would make them take their whole life, whole communities, and say, this story has to go out? They must have seen somebody rise from the dead. They saw the truth. Third, we also, as this group of non-Christians primarily, said we have to admit that there are reasons that we don't want this book to be historically reliable. Because it's very inconvenient for us. If Jesus rose from the dead, then that means that that changes my afternoon. Maybe it changes the where I'm going to eat this afternoon. It changes what I'm thinking about right now. It changes worship right now for us. You know, if Homer wrote the Iliad or Plato, whatever is in Plato's Republic, whatever he, political advice he gives, it doesn't have a lot of implication for us right now. But if Jesus rose from the dead, it, it means everything. It means he's Lord. And we have to lay everything down at his feet and call him king. Right? So, there's some external evidence for the resurrection. I think it's important in, in a way to put that forward because if we don't even begin to trust this as a historical document, how do we begin to be moved by what happens in the story? What happens to Mary? Let's look at Mary. Mary, this is Mary Magdala. Uh, Mary Magdalene. She's from the town of Magdala. There's a lot of Marys in the Bible. Uh, but Mary is from the town of Magdala. And she's an odd person to put in as a character witness in, a, in, a, in the New Testament, in a story in which you were trying to build a movement. You're trying to build upon something. Mary is from the town of Magdala. If you know anything, and Magdala is... Nobody knows anything about Magdala. Magdala was a boom town. Mad, Magdala was kind of like Dodge City. It was fast. You went there for one reason, because you had money and you wanted to spend it. And if you were a single woman living in Magdala, then chances are that you were a prostitute. Now, we don't know that for sure about, about Mary Magdalene. But we, it has come down that she has, was a person of questionable character. The second thing we need to know about her is that Jesus removed seven demons from her. So you start to get a picture of who Mary was. She was a person who had a, had a terrible story. Right? She was a person who did have a questionable character. And she's a person for whom Jesus came in and changed that story. And when it says that this is Mary Magdalene, what we need to know is that that's a footnote for us. It's a footnote for the people of the first century because they would go, oh, that's Mary. She's from Magdala. And I can go to Magdala and I can ask people about her. And I can verify if this story is true. Now, if you're a prostitute, or you're, I don't want to say that, if you're a person of questionable character, if you are a person who's had seven demons, then everybody in the town knows who you are. Your reputation has gone far and wide. 
And it wouldn't take a whole lot to come into that town and start asking people about Mary and have them say, do you know what she became? I knew her when she was that. Man, she, I don't know how to explain it. That's why she's in here. She's a verifiable eyewitness. So, the first point, the resurrection is historical. You can trust it. You can stand on it. Second thing, the, the resurrection is personable, personal. Mary stood weeping. She stood. Right before this passage, Peter and John both come to the tomb. And they both look in in different ways. And you could preach sermons on, on both how they experienced that moment. But what's, what's interesting is that they come out of the tomb and they leave without saying a word to Mary. And Mary is left standing there and it says, but, right? But Mary stood weeping. And I saw that. And I think it's very, very informative to us to get an idea of who Mary is. Mary's tough. Mary, she's not going anywhere. She's no wilting lily. She's no shrinking violet. She is standing there and she is getting, she's going to get to the bottom of this. Her story isn't over. You know, this is not the first time that we see somebody standing before a tomb in the book of John. So Jesus, he comes to Lazarus' tomb, his friend, and what does he do? He raises him from the dead. He calls him out of that tomb. And in a sense, he's saying, Lazarus, your story isn't over. And Lazarus, smelling everything as a dead person would, comes out of that tomb. And I think Mary's thinking just that. She's no, she knows she doesn't have the power to, to do it. But she's seeing Jesus who's entered into her life. And, and here's a person who everybody made feel cheap. And here's Jesus who made her feel utterly expensive. And she's saying, my story cannot be over. I've seen him do so many things. Will he overcome this? And of course, in standing there, and this is really actually helpful for if you're sniffing around with Christianity, if you're curious about Jesus, she is existentially determined. She's spiritually motivated. And so she, she stood there. She stoops, it says, and then eventually she sees. That's really helpful for, helpful for the Christian process. Because, you know, from the heavenly perspective, people become a Christian in an instant. You're saved, you're justified, you're rescued. But from a humanly perspective, it kind of, there's a process. It takes a long time sometimes. So there's a process. And what happens to her? She stood... She eventually gets up the nerve to look further and she stoops and looks in. And what does she see? She, she sees two angels. This is how tough she is. She sees angels. You know what happens when people see angels in the Bible? They freak out. They fall down. They, they run in fear. The whole, the whole world's coming undone. It's Armageddon. Or, you know, that's a biblical term. I shouldn't say that. It's, you know, it's, a, it's cataclysmic, right? Mary's like, what does she say? She has tunnel vision on. She has tunnel vision. And she says, they say, uh, she saw two angels in white. Why are you weeping? And her response is not what you would expect it to be. 
she says, basically, I don't care if you're angels. I'm not looking for messengers of the king, which are what angels are. I'm looking for the king. She says, they've taken my Lord. I'm, uh, they've taken my Lord, and I don't know where he is. She sees tunnel vision. She sees right through what unbelievable creatures they must have been. And she looks for Jesus. So it's personal. All of our lives are, you know, that's what it is to be a human being. We are personal beings. We have stories. And in every instance, you can imagine that Mary's story held her back. It held her down. She was bound by her story. And Jesus Christ comes in and he gives another dimension to it. He gives an ending. There was, this, there was an article in the New York Times not too long ago, and it was about the emotional health of children and how to create an emotionally stable child. And the, and the article is called The Stories That Bind Us. And I love the, t- the, the title of that article because on one hand it says, every person has a story. All human beings are bound by a story. And yet, there are some stories that are good for us. There are some stories that are healthy, that help us out, and there are some that hold us back. There are some that bind us down. And it said that every story is reduced, you can reduce everybody's story into three different narratives. There's the ascending narrative, which says that, it basically goes like this, Son, I came here with nothing, I worked hard, I made a name for myself, and now you. And then there's the descending narrative. And the descending narrative says, Honey, sweetheart, we had everything. And tragically, we lost it all. And now you. And then the third narrative is what's called the oscillating narrative. And that's a narrative that goes up and down. And that's the parent who says to the child, Sweetheart, you know, we, your mom and dad, your, your mom and I, we met in college and we fell in love. But man, when we graduated, we had a hard time finding a job. But we did. Then we got pregnant and we had you. And then we lost a pregnancy. Now, you know your uncle, we've loved him, but he's been in and out of jail. We've had a house burned down. Your grandparents are pillars of the community. So it, you see, it's a, it's a story that's full, right? There's all kinds of details. It's good and bad. And that creates an environment for uh, any person but a child to grow up in and see that they will persevere. Things will happen. Right? They'll be okay. But if you're listening to those narratives and, and maybe you're putting yourself into one of them, you're saying, that's fine. You all have to admit, they're lacking something. They're lacking an ending. Because in each one of those, every person is going to face something that they cannot overcome. And that's death. And the gospel is one big story about saying, there's a fourth narrative out there you need to know. And that's the story of hope. That's the story of redemption. That's the story of Jesus. And from beginning to end, the whole Bible is, tells, you know, 66 books from Revelation, Genesis to Revelation. It's a story of, of four, it's four stories in one. It begins with an ascending narrative, right? We started with nothing. And we became great. We rose to great heights. And then what happens? There's a, a, a descending narrative. The fall of mankind, Adam and Eve, when they chose to be in rebellion against God, they tragically, regretfully lost everything. And now you and I, we live in this world that's of wonderful things and woeful things, and we can't make heads or tails of it. But each and every one of us is longing for a hopeful ending. That's why um, one author, he says, 
He says you've got to have hope. Without hope, life is meaningless. Without hope, life is meaning less and less. Or the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., he says, we must accept finite disappointment, but never lose infinite hope. So let me really quickly just apply what infinite hope looks like in those three narratives. If you grew up in an in a ascending narrative home, then you get a, the living hope. You get the story of redemption into your, into your life. And you say, yeah, I grew up in an environment that was a pressure cooker that I had to succeed. And though there was love there, it often felt conditional upon my achievement. And if you have a, uh, the narrative of hope there, then, then that re- re- means that you have the, you're inspired to really work hard, but you're free to fail. Because the love that's in your life, the, love, the true love that's in the world... Is giving you an identity outside of that that uh, that works-based relationship. The descending narrative. Say you've lost everything. Say you never had anything. You know. Say you're always swimming upstream. Say you you will never ever have anything in this world. When the the story of redemption comes in and says that comes in that that places an identity on you that nothing can touch. No matter how awful your life is. You know, there are people that are born in this world and there's never a hope, obviously, that they're going to do anything in their life except die. Suffer and die. Right? That's the world we live in. But the narrative hope can come in and transform that. The oscillating narrative. What I like about this, because this is sort of my story, I fit into this narrative. There's been wonderful things that have happened to me, and there have been woeful things that have happened to me. But the narrative of hope comes in and it protects me from myself. It protects me from thinking that, the, that this world is all about my personal happiness. That this world is all about my next career move, the relationship that I'm in. It protects me from being narcissistic. That the world is so much bigger than myself, and it gives me purpose. Mary was given a purpose in this story. She says, go and tell, he said, he says, Jesus says to her, go and tell my brothers. And of course, that's the purpose of every person who comes to faith in Jesus. The world is bigger than yourself. Briefly, we'll move into the third point. So the resurrection is historical, it's personal, but it's also transformational. Mary stood weeping. The whole point of Christianity is to take our tears of sorrow and transform them into tears of joy. It's to take all of our frustrations in life, internally and externally, and turn them into hope. John 17, Jesus is praying with His Father, and He says this. He says, I want my friends to have the kind of relationship that I have with you. I want them to have that. I want them to be so united to you that they, they, they trust you the way that I do. That they're moved the way that I do. That they have the joy, the peace that I have. I want them to have that too. And after the resurrection, Jesus says that He's going to ascend. And, what, and He says, I am going to my God and your God. I'm going to my Father and your Father. See, it's one thing for us to see Jesus resurrected. So Mary sees Jesus resurrected, not only are her, her tears, her tears are turned to joy, but she hears something that everybody has to hear. We all need to hear. And that is the word ascension. 
See, Jesus wasn't just resurrected, but He rose, and now He reigns in heaven. He reigns in His, his sovereign rule over everything. And that is huge for us. Why? Because it means that you and I don't reign. And it means that all the people that we don't want to reign in this world, all the despots, all the people that are completely selfish, they don't reign either. But Jesus does. You know, in Acts 2, when it says that this same Jesus is coming back, I think that's one of the best, most beautiful, beautiful little snippets in all the, all the Bible. Because Jesus is so beautiful, and we all want Him so bad. And it says, that same Jesus, He's coming back. But the same Jesus is also reigning. There's a story, um, uh, a short story by Nabokov, and it's called The Word. And in that story, there's this homeless guy, and he's a Russian peasant, looks like he's come out of the war, and he's standing there in tattered rags. And somehow he's transported into this, into this paradise. And it's, it's fragrant, and there's all these bright colors and all these exotic animals and birds and oranges and turquoises and all that. And you can just imagine. And this, these angels come in. And they're magnificent creatures, you can just imagine. And one of their wings opens up and he says, it was as if a million eyes were sparkling uh, underneath the angel's wings. And this peasant, he's starving and he's old and you can just, he's grasping on, he wants to touch, he wants to enter into this in a more full way. And at some point, all the, the angels, they start to recede and they start to fly away to a feast. And it's heartbreaking for him. But one angel recognizes what's happening. He turns and he comes up to the man and he wraps his wings around the angel very briefly, long enough, it says, to whisper a single word into his ear. And it never tells us what that word is. But it says the word is so fragrant and melodious that it spreads through the man like a drug, beating in his temples and spreading warmth in him, and in, in him such as he has never felt before. So we're never told the word, and I don't actually think that it matters because when that man is told the word, he's no beggar anymore. He's homesick no more, and his tears are transformed. And I think for us, when we look at this passage, that word is ascension. Jesus has ascended. So, next steps. How do we move out after this? The next steps might be, that we meditate upon the fact that if Christ is risen, like Mary, that means that my story isn't over either. There's a fourth narrative that we can cling to, to motivate us. My next step might be to recognize that Jesus is on the throne of my life, and therefore I am not, and I don't need to pretend to be king. I don't need to fight to be king. And it's good that He's there. And then the third step is to remember that we, when weeping comes... It has new meaning in Christ's death, resurrection, and His ascension. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I am I'm so thankful, Lord, for the Bible that You condescend to have placed Your story in a way that we can, that we can understand, that we can rely on it. And I thank You so much for the details that as human beings, when we come to it, we just recognize ourselves. This is a universal experience. And you are the God of the universe and you've come in and you've, you've given it to us. 
Lord, I thank you for uh, Pentecost. But through the power of your spirit, Lord, that you just detonated your spirit into, this, into, the, into the cosmos. And the story is going out and it's penetrating hearts and changing lives for your glory. Because you're the king. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.